You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers podcast in Toronto, live and in the morning, way up on the 88th floor, way off to the east, I can see Blow Me Down, Newfoundland. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accountants and CPAs in Toronto today. This is going to be fantastic. Kanata Lake is with us. Kanata is a partner at Tories. He's the head of Tories Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Group. I'm excited to speak to him. I know you're excited to hear him. Kanata, welcome to the Movers and Shakers podcast. Great. Thanks so much, Robert. I'm excited to be here with you. I want to talk a little bit about your career path and your journey and how you got to where you are, because as the head of the Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Group, and I just want to draw people's attention to the website, Tories.com, T-O-R-Y-S, Tories.com. Right on the front page, it says the next wave of innovation in Canada, which must have an effect on you. So besides bringing strategic thinking and deep knowledge to help businesses scale and investors realize their investment strategies in emerging and high growth companies, I'd like you to tell us about how you help founders and investors, and what types of support do you and does your firm provide for venture pack startups? I know it's a big question, but over to you. No, absolutely. Thanks so much for the question, and thanks for having me. You know, what kind of supports do we provide to startup firms? We're really there from soup to nuts, as they say. We're there at the earliest stage if a founder simply has an idea and wants to get set up properly and is comfortable engaging with the law firm early on, we're there to help them get incorporated to get all kind of the standard incorporation documents that we recommend founders have. So a stock option plan, restricted stock agreement to ensure appropriate kind of restrictions on founder shares, template employment agreement, consultant agreement, advisor agreement, all kind of the things they need. So that's at your very early stage. And then we're with them along for the journey. So what we find is after that initial setup, a lot of our time is actually just be more an advisor as they think about different strategic items than necessarily a lawyer and will answer questions. And then as they grow, they move to different financing stages where they go to the market, to angel investors, to venture capital funds and seek investments. And we'll be there with them to help you know, guide them along that process, help them draft the necessary documents and do necessary negotiations on their behalf. You know, that kind of repeats itself. The cycle for startups says you have money till you don't. And so you kind of spend uh, to get to certain milestones and then you go out and you raise again. So we're there with them along those milestones. And then hopefully, eventually to a successful exit, which can be, you know, an IPO or a sale to another company or any number of other alternatives. So we're with founders along for the entire journey. For investors, VC investors, we represent them in, on the other side, so invest into founders. And it's helpful to have a practice group that does both because you kind of understand the other side and we're able to give more knowledgeable advice that way by representing both sides. And so with the VC investors, we're there to help them diligence on a, on a company, legal diligence, help them understand the documentation that's in place, walk them through the process of actually you know, investing in a company. One of the questions I often get as a managing partner of a local firm of chartered accounts and CPAs is, do you have a startup package? Well, of course, you, you tailor what you have to the needs of the client. But I know that a number of the downtown law firms in Toronto do have startup packages. Can you tell us if there is a startup package at Tories? And does it include all those documents you mentioned two minutes ago? So that's exactly what the startup package covers. It's a $5,000 package. We get them incorporated, stock option plan, 
restricted stock agreement, template employment agreement, template advisory agreement, template consultancy agreement. And if they're getting incorporated at the time, they're doing kind of initial fundraising with a document called a SACE, Simple Agreement for Future Equity, or a document that's called a convertible note. We'll even do their first kind of SAFE or convertible note financing round, assuming it's 10 or less investors. We'll cover that all into that kind of initial 5,000 package. Well, thank you for mentioning the SAFE agreements because, again, as accountants, we're hearing about SAFE agreements all the time where three years ago, nobody was mentioning it. Can you talk to us about SAFE agreements for a minute, why they're popular and what they actually mean? Absolutely. Happy to do so. You know, the SAFE was invented by Y Combinator out of the U.S. And the SAFE agreement, I think of it as convertible note without maturity and without an interest rate. So historically, the way in which investors invested in startups was through convertible notes. And and people still use convertible notes today. But the convertible note was kind of the prime mode of investing in startup companies. What people found is it imposed two kind of restrictions on founders or weights on founders that people in the ecosystem thought we probably could do without. One is the maturity date. So a founder would have to worry about at some point, two years, three years, I will have to repay this. Early stage founder trying to grow the company, having to worry about you know, repaying a convertible note is probably not what you want a founder worrying about. So that was one concern. Next is interest rate. The founder is not only responsible for the principal amount of the convertible note, but also that interest that keeps adding on to that note. The SAFE effectively removes those two components and otherwise really looks and feels very much like a convertible note. It's just no interest, no maturity. Same concept that what we're doing when we enter into these agreements is we're saying we're taking a bet on the founder, we're taking a bet on their idea, but we don't know what the company's valued, and that's okay. We're going to defer that valuation process until the future. And so the safe or the note will convert into equity at some later time. Is that a time that's mutually agreeable? Is that how it's structured? It's usually in the simplest form, the conversion will happen at the time the company enters into a priced financing round. So that's when the company's grown sufficiently enough where they can go out to an investor and say, invest money in me and and let's put a value on my company and let's actually value my typically preferred shares, which effectively often is a proxy for the value of the company. And so there'll be a price that an investor will pay for preferred shares. When the company gets to that stage, the convertible note or the safe converts into equity at one of two options. First is some discount to that price that the future investor pays in their preferred share round, or safe or convertible notes will sometimes have a valuation cap in them. And the valuation cap is kind of the, the founder and the investor. This is the early stage safe or convertible note investor saying, we don't know the value today, but if the company does a future financing, we think an appropriate value at which the investor today should convert, that's kind of your, your valuation cap that the parties agree to upfront. So if the company does really well and goes past that valuation cap, the investor is getting the benefit of that delta, right? Because their valuation cap would be lower than wherever the company is soared to. And so the investor comes in at that lower valuation cap and effectively reaps the delta immediately, right? In the sense that they know that someone else is paying whatever the higher value is, they're converting at a lower valuation cap. So that's, that's like a right there, kind of an economic benefit that the investor will get. And the theory being that investor is there with you at the early stage, you're taking a bet on the company, a bet on the founder, and they get that kind of preference as compared to the investor that comes in later and actually puts a price on the preferred share. 
Well, I appreciate that because the safe agreements are really popular and that's a terrific explanation. Let's talk now about mergers and acquisitions for venture-backed startups because a lot of reports have come out lately and they've noted that the pandemic has dramatically impacted M&A activity in Canada. This impact has really continued this year, almost to the end of 2021. And I read a report lately that indicates that while tech sector M&A activity slowed down in 2020, we're now seeing the number of deals skyrocket with Q3 in 2021, like last month, hitting record sales. Deal making rose 27, almost 28%, to almost $77 billion. So my question to you is, what factors are attributed to the rise of merger and acquisition activity in the Canadian startup space? What we're seeing really in the pandemic, we saw this March, April, May 2020, when there's almost like what felt like a freeze, not just in the startup world, but kind of deal making in general more broadly, uh, where people kind of just paused and wondered, what is this? What is happening? And what we've seen since then is this gradual just increase in transaction numbers and values across all kind of categories and spectrums. What I think is really driving that is the pandemic. It's created demand in a lot of ways, right? There's incredible amount of demand for new technologies, for new way of doing things, generally speaking, remote way of doing things, more virtual ways of interacting, and more distance way of engaging with clients and customers. And so there are startups that were there before and they've been excelled there, you know, seen growth kind of accelerated. And there are other startups that have come into the market to kind of fill those various needs and, and gaps and, and fit that demand. What startups are realizing is I can build organically or I can acquire to help me scale fast enough. There's just tremendous demand for this kind of new way of functioning, not new, but kind of accelerated way of functioning remotely that startups that existed before are using the funds from all this money that we see going into venture capital. And part of what they're using that money for is to buy other startups that can help them scale faster as compared to if they try to just do it organically internally. So let's think about being strategic. And with the market acquisitions, as you're saying, there's more and more getting more and more competitive. So I wonder what factors do you see that startups have to consider in order to be strategic in this this ecosystem of M&A right now? Part of it is startups have to think about, am I a buyer or am I a seller? Right? Like, am I going out to acquire other startups to grow or is my best position that I offer and a product or services that will be better suited as a part of some other larger company or larger startup. And part of what we see happening is startups running almost what we call dual tracks, right? Where they are going out and potentially raising financing, but also at the same time looking at opportunities to be sold to someone else. And and we often see that where a particular startup has a relationship with either another startup, when I buy relationship, I mean they provide services to another startup or they provide services to a larger kind of corporate entity. And so they'll go out and they'll see, okay, what is the market appetite for a raise? And they'll also, as part of that, potentially maybe this customer of theirs, look to get them to come in on the, on the financing round. And the customer might say, look, what do you think you're going to raise money at? What valuation? And they may say, I'm willing to actually pay a premium to that and bring you into the fold of my company. And so we've seen that and we recently worked on a transaction where representing the acquirer in an exact scenario where ultimately what our buyer client was willing to offer 
was a premium to the, what the company could get simply on a financing round because the, there are synergies that our buyer client would realize by folding in the startup could transfer some of those synergies to the purchase price. The startup that we, our client, ended up buying realize a better kind of return at that point as compared to going out and raising money. One of the things that plays into this is at that moment, you have founders who, in this example I mentioned, a four or five-year startup, and so the founder has spent like four years, in this case, so five years, building this company, even with the next raise. We, we should talk maybe a bit about secondaries, but mm-hmm. maybe they could get some secondary exit, and so they can get some liquidity, but not as much liquidity as if they sell the entire thing. And so there then, that founder had to think, I can do a financing round, I can get some of that be secondary, but that's money not coming into the company for me to grow the company. Or I can have a complete exit where I, I cash out now, and I agree to become an employee off this other startup or larger corporate. And so I get that employment arrangement and the ability to continue to grow the company, and I get my equity today all out. So we read in the papers about the unicorn and all the companies that are, that are doing you know tremendous multi-hundreds of million dollar raises, but the reality is those are fantastic, but the vast majority of startups in the category where they'll, they'll sell, the ones that survive will probably sell to someone else at much kind of lower values, but still significant for that founder. And so real money on the table for that founder. And so they have to kind of think through this paradigm often of continuing to try to build this thing that they're really passionate about or exit in and be part of a larger company and trying to grow this idea within a larger company, but also getting the equity today, the cash out today. So let's talk about what kind of startups are best suited for an M&A move, because I know that merging can help startups grow really fast, much faster than anticipated. And they also help boost the startup's prestige in the marketplace and their credibility because the market's looking at them. However, selecting the best route as a founder is often daunting and it's error prone and there's a lot of forks in the road. So from your experience, Kanata, what type of startups are best suited for M&As as opposed to saying stay private or even God help us going public. And what do you look for in the startups you support? A chunk of it will come down to what are the goals and aspirations of the founder? Is this a founder who still has it within them to kind of grind away at growing the business? Are they willing to let go and and hire a, a CEO while they're still the owner and let someone with more operational experience run the business? Do they have enough capital to do that? Is that just desirable for them. So a lot of it will, will depend on the founder or founders and their mindset at the time they're faced with this decision. It will also depend on the stage of their startup. Do they have one product or service that they're offering? Is there more ability to scale that and do other add-on products and services such that they can build kind of a complex product line or service line out of it? Or they've kind of figured out what they think they need someone else with deeper capital, broader expertise that they, they don't feel comfortable kind of hiring after a financing round such that it's best to exit to someone else. So that's another consideration. So what's the founder's mindset and what is the nature of their, the agent stage of the, their product and the possibilities for the future? And candidly, the other consideration is how much money is being offered to them. You know, a founder may, on my first point, be happy to stay in the fight for a bit longer. They may have a product that's completely scalable and they can think of you know, 100 different services they could offer it and they can see this. But notwithstanding those two things, you may just have someone who's a what we refer to as a strategic, so someone that is not a financial backer like a VC, but a, a large company that wants to utilize this product and services, who comes along and says, 
that's all great, but I will pay you X multiple on whatever your profit is or whatever your revenue is. And it may just be a number that the founder can't say no to, particularly if that buyer offers them equity. One thing a buyer can offer is simply cash. You exchange your company shares, get cash, and that's the end of it. Or what we often see, particularly if the the buyer is a startup, what we may see is is that buyer offering equity. So you as a founder of the startup, you're you're now looking at the possibility of, I'm not really fully cashing out. I'll get maybe part cash and part equity. And so I get the potential growth opportunity of not just my business, but I also get the opportunity of this larger business and the ability to cash out of a larger enterprise in the future if we get this thing right as part of a larger startup. So, so those are some of the considerations that a founder has to think through. And a lot of it will come down to kind of a big decision for a founder that factors in where they are in terms of their life and also where their business is and, and what are the alternatives in terms of monetary uh, alternatives. So if I'm a startup and I have my eye on an M&A deal down the road, I have two questions for you. When should I start preparing and what should I do to prepare for a merger or an acquisition down the road? Right. So great question. And you start the day you incorporate, right? In, in a sense of it's very similar to what we tell our clients who are looking to raise financing. So not a sale, but just raise financing. The same kind of mental thinking. Your formation documents, simple, it's a simple thing. It's not simple, but it's important. Do you have IP assignment provisions for your founders and for your employees? And what that means is a document whereby your founders and your employees all say they clearly assign any intellectual property, property they create as part of being engaged with the startup over to the startup. It's a you know, simple document. It's in our startup package. Sometimes we spend time explaining to founders that is critical because a VC investor and a potential buyer, that's one of the things they will look for because what they're thinking about is when I buy this company or when I invest in this company, what am I getting? What is the bundle of rights that I'm buying into? And knowing that this company owns all the IP is fundamental, particularly if we're talking about a tech startup that has a lot of IP, it's fundamental to a buyer getting comfortable what they're paying is worth what they're getting in return. It really starts at the very beginning when you get your company set up, making sure it's kind of form documents, but are really important, are signed up, are properly stored, and are available to be viewed in the context of, a, of an acquisition. One of the things we do with Tories with our startup clients is we actually get them set up on a data room the moment they start. So all of their corporate organizational documents, employee documents, contracts, we get that set up on a data room so that we are always ready for when a financing or an acquisition may come because what we don't want is there's a financing transaction or an acquisition transaction that comes up suddenly and we're scrambling to kind of collect all those documents. So we encourage our founders to provide us with the documents. We'll upload and manage kind of a, an ongoing data room. And as they get new documents entered into, they give us to us. So that's a way as you execute your day-to-day operations, you're always preparing for potential financing or potential acquisition. Well, I think that's terrific because so many of our clients, even when they go to the bank, they can't put their hands on the pertinent documents as easily as they should be able to. Let me ask you a question before we go, and that's about advisory boards. I'm a big proponent of them. I think every company, every startup, every tech entrepreneur should 
elicit, solicit people around him, get their advice, and create an advisory board. Not add them to the board of directors, but an advisory board. Can you give us your elevator pitch on advisory boards, pro, con, whatever your thoughts are? I'm 100% pro, and I'm really glad you asked that question. Not only am I pro for companies, I'm pro for individuals. I, I think we should all have our, what I call our advisory boards, as you say, as an individual, those two or three people that you have who you know you can go to and, and stress test your ideas and you check in with periodically to help guide both your personal life or your career. So I'm pro advisory boards for as you know, for individuals. And so I'm definitely pro advisory boards for startups. The reality is you don't know what you don't know. And while you may be an expert in the particular issue you're trying to solve, there are a host of business thinking, strategies, alternatives, opportunities that you likely as a founder have just not been exposed to. And having the right advisory board, that's a combination of people you simply value and trust and people who are experts in a particular field that's relevant to your startup is critical and worth its weight in gold in terms of eventual success of a startup. 100%. And it's really lonely at the top, and you need people to talk to. You should be talking to your advisory board, your lawyer, your accountant. You should be talking on a regular day to people that know you, know your business, but are not intimately involved in it. Kanata, my favorite part and our listeners' favorite part of these episodes, and that is our rapid-fire questions. I'm going to ask you six or seven questions right off the top of your head. Give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? All right, I'll do my best. Favorite city? Um, New York City. First real job? I uh, worked as a summer like analyst, which is a fancier name than I just kind of pushed spreadsheets in a, at, a, at a large company. My first job, I think, might have been in a cemetery. Your favorite thing about being a lawyer? I get to help people solve kind of complex issues. And so at the end of the day, when our interaction ends, they're usually uh, better, you know, happy with, with whatever the outcome is. What career path would you have otherwise taken if not law? Well, I wanted to be a professional football player, but, you know, didn't have the skills for that. So probably an accountant. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be a disc jockey. This is as close as I'm getting. What's, what's one thing you never leave the house without? Before I leave home every morning, I try to just take a deep breath in and be thankful for uh, the life I, I've got. I think I've been tremendously blessed, and, and so I try to do that every morning. Morning person or night owl? Night owl. Favorite book or TV show? Favorite book is uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn oh, Rand. Well done. And what are you currently watching on Netflix? I just scroll through random whatever's on the actual TV and like probably find something. I find that YouTube is distracting me from doing just like yes. R&R reading. YouTube, I find yes. so many yes. things there. Okay, finally, what industry will be gone in five years? Hopefully not lawyers. Um, <laughs> Somebody answered lawyers once, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten that, but I, I think the value we provide in terms of helping clients think through really complex things. I just, I think it's hard to automate that. So, okay. So um, not so, lawyers. So my answer is going to be not lawyers. Not lawyers. <laughs> the answer is not lawyers. Okay. Kanata Lake, <laughs> partner at Tories, head of Tories Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Group, Tories.com. Kanata, thank you for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. Until next time, I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to know what a great CPA can do for your innovating company, check us out at bennettgold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night. Blow me down, Newfoundland. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.